Well, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned uh, something about a guy named Nabil Qureshi in his book, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. And there was something interesting that Nabil said near the end of his book, something that I found quite interesting, quite challenging, convicting even. You see, just to give you a little bit of a background, Nabil grew up as a, as a Muslim in, here in, mostly in North America. He had some time overseas. He's from uh, a Central Asian uh, family. And over the course of his time, he was very devout growing up. And then when he went away to college, he was on a team. And on that team, he met a man who became his best friend. And that man, I believe his name was David, ended up, was a believer. And over the course of the next several years, Nabil and David would go back and forth and they would debate and they would talk and they would have these great uh, convicting conversations. Until one day, finally, after much prayer, much agony, much wrestling, even knowing that he was going to face the shame from his parents, he became a follower of Christ. And what was, for me, so convicting in the book is that as, almost as soon as he said, yes, I am a follower of Christ, yes, I am yours, Jesus, almost immediately he said, my eyes were opened and I began to see everyone else in a new light. He said, I began to see people walking down the road wondering, do they know the Savior that I now know? Do they know Jesus the way that I know them? They need to know Jesus. Nabil only lived about 10 years after he became a follower of Christ. And in those 10 years, his zeal, his fervor for the Lord burned brightly and burned hot. He traveled all over the country, sharing the gospel with as many people as he, would, he, as he could. He would speak it and, made and he would do big things for God's glory because he had a, a zeal that everyone needed to know that he now met. Now, I would guess that for most of us, there are seasons when our evangelistic zeal is more passionate. There are times when, when we think, yes, I want to do this all. I want to share the gospel. I want to get the word out. I want to do this. And then there are other times when we just get a little bit lackadaisical. It's as though the hope of the gospel, the promise of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins is not good enough news for us to get the word out to our friends, to our family members, to strangers we meet. And so today, as we continue looking at how we can have disciplined delight in the Trinity, we come to the spiritual discipline of evangelism. Now, as I've been looking at different resources, maybe you're a little bit like me. Maybe you're thinking, oh, is evangelism really a discipline? I mean, reading scripture, that makes sense. We can do that every day. Praying, that's something we could do multiple times a day. Memorizing and meditating on scripture. We can see all sorts of other things. We're going to look at fasting. We're going to look at stewarding, all sorts of other things. But evangelism? I would guess that for most of us, myself included, often think of evangelism that something, someone else is gifted to do. Someone else has the zeal. Someone else has the gift to go and be an evangelist. I couldn't do that. I wouldn't know what to say. But I want to encourage us. Let's look at Scripture and let's consider a bit of what Scripture teaches 
And let us follow the example of others who have demonstrated a willingness to be unashamed of the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Romans chapter 1. Here in this introductory chapter of this beautiful treatise on salvation. In fact, the whole book of Romans is this glorious picture of what salvation is, where, where it comes from, our condition, what God is doing, and then life in, in Christ after we come to faith. And here in chapter 1, Paul ex- begins by expressing gratitude for the faith that he has heard about in the Romans. And he, and he tells them, I want to come and I want to preach the gospel among you that I might bear fruit. I want to be mutually encouraged by you even as I try to encourage you. So let's look at Starting in verse 8 through 17, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And here's the main passage we're going to look at today. These two verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. One of the things we see in the life of Paul, and if we were to read through the book of Acts, you would would see this, that from his very earliest days, he had a fervor and a desire, a zeal to share the gospel with as many people as he could. And as we look specifically at these last two verses, I think we find five reasons, maybe more, but we're going to consider five reasons why we should be unashamed like Paul was to share the gospel. And so if you want to follow along in your bulletins, if you want to take notes, if if that's a way that you learn best, feel free to do that. And first of all, we learn from Paul that we should be unashamed of the message, unashamed of this message that we have, this good news. He begins by saying, for for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He was eager to go to Rome, as we saw earlier, as we read, that to share the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ and throughout his life, he demonstrated a willingness to go to whatever lengths needed in order to get the word out about the good news of Jesus Christ. He faced imprisonment. He experienced beatings. He received ridicule from former friends and colleagues. He even demonstrated a willingness to share the gospel in front of skeptics and rulers alike. God gave him the ability to go in a variety of different places in order to share 
the gospel. But as the writers of, of the comments in, in the Christian Standard Bible ask, why might someone be, why would we be ashamed of the gospel? And some of the reasons that might have been shameful for Paul and his contemporaries might be different than it would be for us. But the CSB commentators continue. They say, on the surface, the gospel seems like a, a very strange message. It's about a Jewish carpenter and teacher who was put to death on a cross by Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor of Judea in AD 26 to 36. The message, the gospel, says that this man, Jesus, was raised from the dead and, and is now Lord, or in Greek, kurios. And the title was used of God in the Greek Bible, but it was also used of the emperor himself. So Paul himself wrote that this message seems foolish to Gentiles, because their Lord was the emperor, and a stumbling block to Jews, because their Lord was God. A crucified Messiah seemed to be a contradiction in terms to Jews. So we have this message that is confounding to everybody that is, is a, a, a potential audience. The message itself seems strange. It, Jews viewed someone's death on a tree to be a curse, and yet Paul, elsewhere in, in Scripture, tells us that Jesus died on the cross. He took our curse. Look at Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so Paul faced shame from both Jewish and Roman or Gentile oppressors. But, but what about us? Why are we sometimes tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? And maybe it's not, maybe we're proud, maybe we're glad that we received the salvation, so it's not so much a shame, but maybe there's something else that's keeping us back, keeping our mouths shut when maybe they should be open. Do we feel that this is good news? Maybe we, we are ashamed because we don't want to offend our friends. One of the things we run across in Scripture is that the very things, the sin that so easily entangles us, the sin that wraps us up is something that our society often calls identity. And so now we have to change definitions. We have to help people see, no, your identity is not your activity. Your identity is in who God made you to be. Your activity is either God-honoring or God dishonoring. And if it's dishonoring, then it's sin. That's a message that is hard for people to hear. And so sometimes I wonder if we're ashamed because we don't want to tell them, hey, you're a sinner. But guess what? Me too. I was a sinner too. I am a sinner. Or maybe, maybe we've bought into that cultural universalism. I mean, this is so prevalent in our society today. It doesn't matter what you believe, just that you believe something. And so we assume that as long as people are generally good and generally religious, that all roads lead to God. So we're not, we're ashamed to get out the, the exclusive word of the gospel. Maybe we fear others, fear what they might think. Well, will I still have friends if I tell them I'm a Christian? I know for our brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a man that we've been, I've been praying with uh, Eric and Lynn uh, that they're ministering to in the Middle East. He's been a believer for some time and his wife still doesn't know that he's saved. He's afraid 
Because as soon as he lets her know, there's a good chance she's going to leave him. And his job, which is wrapped up in her family, is going to be his, you know, it's going to be gone. But I wonder too if sometimes we're ashamed of the gospel because we have too small a view of God. We don't think that God is good enough. God is just enough. God is able to do what he says he'll do. Which kind of brings us to our next point. Paul stated that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It seems like Paul shows us this example that we should be unashamed of our big God, unashamed of just how glorious and huge God is. The gospel really communicates so much about God. Who do you and I, who do we think God is? Do we see him as a cosmic daddy or cosmic grandpa who just wants us to be happy? Do we see him as a grumpy old man with a big beard who's angry with us or doesn't want us to have any fun? Or do we see him for who he is, or at least as much as we can grasp of who he is? Do we see him as the sovereign creator over all things who spoke the universe into existence? who fashioned all that we see and then chose for his glory to make us in his image? Do we see him as holy and perfect, a God who is without error, a God who does not change with the shifting tides of society, a God who is just, he's consistent, he's upright, a God who establishes standards designed both. And and I, I think this is an important thing that we need to grasp He designed standards that both honor him, but cause us to flourish. He's not trying to prevent us from having fun. He wants us to live lives that are holy and right and good. Do we see God as truly loving who sees us in our sinful condition and in love sent his son to redeem us? And he continually pours out his grace. Do we see God as being the one who uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things to shame the strong, who advocates for the widow and the fatherless, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Do we see God as big? Do we see God as a God who seeks and saves the lost? We serve a big God who sees and knows and sustains far more than our myopic perspective can comprehend. And so when it comes to being unashamed evangelists, this means that we simply get to be the messenger. We get to be the herald. We get to share the good news and let God do all the work. We get to leave salvation up to him. We get to walk in obedience, trusting the outcomes to him. We get to be faithful And we get to watch him work. For Nabil and his friend David, David, he told Nabil early on when he became a follower of Christ or when they first met that he was a follower of Christ. David, I think before he met Nabil, had a bit of a small view of God. And in this, this small view of God really meant that he had to do all the work for saving that he had to get the word out in just such a way and he had to convince people, hey, this is you. If, you're, if, if, if a salvation or a, if, if sharing the gospel didn't result in someone becoming saved, then it was on him. He thought it was all up to him. So he met a couple people and he 
basically shared the gospel as best he could and tried to cajole them and tried to twist their arms into getting saved and ended up losing the friend. And that person never became a follower of Christ. And so when he met Nabil, he changed his course. He said, I'm going to take a bigger view of God. I want to see God work. And so I'm going to play this the long game. This isn't the only encounter I'm going to have with Nabil. And so he and Nabil met for years. In fact, they became best friends long before they were brothers in Christ because he trusted that God was going to save Nabil in his perfect time. And I think so often we get nervous, we get scared to share the gospel, we get shamed to share the gospel because we assume that we have to do it all right. And Paul helps us to see that we should be unashamed of the message because it's great news. We should be unashamed of, of the big God that we serve because ultimately salvation is up to him. We can relax and just share the glorious news that we have. It's not our techniques. It's not our methods. And thirdly, Paul helps us see that we should be unashamed because of the audience. He writes, this is the good news to the Jew first and then the Greek. You see, the gospel is good news for everyone. Paul and his contemporaries were, were really, they viewed people in two categories. There were Jewish people and then there were Gentiles. There, that was the only two categories there were. And really today, in many ways as believers, we would say there are still just two categories. There are those people who are saved and those who, people who are hopefully not yet saved. The only two categories. And so no matter what ethnicity, nationality, level of melanin in our skin, political affiliation, the gospel is good news for everyone. So whether our neighbors come from predominantly Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, or agnostic backgrounds, the gospel is good news for them. We need to see it as not just good news for us. Some people see Christianity as a religion for only one certain group of people. Sometimes, though, because it's good news for everyone, the challenge that I've sometimes run into is how to do that. How do we engage people? How do we introduce the gospel to them? And I want to tell you, as we're going through this, this is very convicting to me because I'm not a very good evangelist. I don't do, you know, I get an opportunity to share the gospel each week from this platform. I get an opportunity when we're giving away food to pray with folks and to engage some people in conversations. But there are times when I freeze up too. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, I got an email from a mom in Baltimore. Her son is, is staying in Gaithersburg and working at the cross vines. And he needed, during all that snow stuff, he needed a little bit of help transportation. And so I said, yeah, I can help him out. So I drove down to Gaithersburg, picked him up from his Airbnb, and we had a wonderful conversation. And all about his culinary school, all about his, you know, something about his family, his church background and things like that. And the plan was for him to go and work all day. And then maybe I was going to bring him home later that night, but he got off work early. And so I couldn't bring him home. Someone else did. But the next day, that Sunday morning, I got up early and drove down to Gaithersburg, picked him up. And I was really hopeful that we would have this wonderful gospel oriented conversation. I was so worried about that that I couldn't figure out the right words to say. He was frankly kind of tired and a little bit grumpy. He didn't want to talk. He just 
So we sat most of the ride in silence. And I feel like in some ways I failed because I was trying to think, oh, what about all those gimmicky things that like I learned an evangelistic method years ago called faith. And, and you would always begin by asking um, what, in your personal opinion, what do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? I should have asked that. I should have asked anything. But instead, we just kind of muttered along. But my hope is that if God gives me an opportunity to encounter him again, that at least there'll be a foundation for a relationship, that I haven't offended him to the point where, I mean, he knows I'm a pastor. His parents are Christians. His brother, frankly, is studying in seminary. And so he knows that the gospel is all around him. So I'm only one piece in that. And I think that's something that we can be aware of is that this is good news for everyone and that everybody, every brother and sister in Christ is unified in this mission to get the word out to everybody else. We should not fear introducing anyone to the gracious love of God. So next, Paul brings up an interesting concept that I think is helpful for us to consider, and that is that we should be unashamed because of the means. Unashamed because of the means. Paul, Paul says that this means is by faith. He writes in verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith faith. And that phrase from faith for faith is an interesting phrase. In fact, some translators have suggested that it means the beginning of and the end of righteousness is revealed through faith in, in God, through faith in Jesus Christ. The very means by which we enter into that relationship is faith. The very means by which we are sustained is faith. And that faith is something that we receive from God. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Romans 3, 21 to 26, he says, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And yet, in his grace, freely makes us in right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. He was ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is just, is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. And I realize that for most of us, if you've grown up in church, you know this, you've heard this, you've memorized one of those verses, right? It's one of the seven verses of the Romans road, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've grown up with that idea that our salvation, our eternal life, that forgiveness of sins is a matter of faith. And, and, and we don't earn it. We don't keep it by what we do. It is ours simply by the grace of God. Ours by faith. He seals us and sustains us. He welcomes us in love. And we respond in love through the faith that he provides. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For our friends and family members who are far from God, this idea of something, of receiving something as big as eternal life, something as big as salvation and freedom from sin, receiving it as a free gift seems unwestern. It seems un-American. It seems unhuman that we wouldn't be able to do anything to earn our salvation. But it's totally God's way of doing things. And it always has been. I mean, think about this. We talked a little bit about Abraham last week. Abraham entered into a covenant with God. Really, God entered into a covenant with Abraham. It wasn't that Abraham was doing anything cool. It wasn't that Abraham was more godly than other people who were walking on earth at that time. God simply said, I choose you, Abraham. And I'm going to enter into a covenant and I'm going to make you a great nation. And, and scripture tells us that Abraham believed and it was counted as righteousness. Abraham wasn't perfect. In fact, there are a few times when he threw his wife under the bus, right? He, he was not a perfect guy. And yet God is faithful. God sustained him by faith. We get to be unashamed of the means by which people are saved. But finally, we learn in this passage that we can be unashamed because of the transformation that results. The righteous shall live by faith. That's really a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. You see, our lives and the lives of those who truly respond to the gospel will be transformed as the Spirit of God continues to work in us, as we yield more and more of our lives to His reign. We put to death the deeds of the flesh, as we see in Romans 8, 13. We are transformed little by little through faith. Let's think about this in a little bit different way. There are some cultures, in fact, some cultures of folks in, in this room that have the practice of arranging marriages. Now, even in summarizing this, I'm not going to do this justice. So if you came from that background, please forgive me if I mess things up. But um, essentially, it would go something like this. Parents of, of two different families would kind of meet each other. They're out looking for the spouse uh, for their children. And it kind of makes sense. Parents know their kids well, and they know what they hope their kids will become. And so for Christian parents in those cultures, there would be a lot of prayer, and they'd be praying and asking, help us to find the right person that you have appointed for my son or daughter. And they would meet this other family, and they'd have some encounters together. They would make some sort of uh, arrangement. And then they would have the, the ceremony, and now this couple is husband and wife. They have covenanted together. They are devoted to each other. And over time, they grow more and more in love with each other. And here in the West, we kind of do it a different way. We kind of say, well, let me fall in love first, and then we'll covenant together. But there, they covenant, and then they learn to fall in love. Commitment to love precedes the feelings. And I think that's the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives and in the lives of those he's drawing. He acts like a go-between. Remember last week we talked about um, Abraham's servant, right? And Abraham's servant went to Abraham and Abraham made him commit. He said, I want you to go and find a, son, find a wife for my son. 
the Holy Spirit works that way on, on God's behalf and he goes out into all the world and he begins to draw people, to woo people, to entice them into this glorious relationship. And then once we say, okay, yes, and we, we enter into that covenant with God, then we are gloriously and gradually transformed. We begin to fall more and more in love with God. We realize just how much he has given us. Our affections begin to shift from the things of this world to the things of God. Our motivations begin to move from self-centered motivations to motivations that are ordained by God. But how does that relate to evangelism? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> First, we get to trust that it's the spirit at work in the people around us. He is drawing them. He is wooing them. And you know what's really cool? The same spirit that is pulling people toward Christ is the same spirit that is pushing you and me toward them in order to help them, in order to instruct them, in order to share the good news of our glorious God with them. The spirit is at work on both sides of the arrangement. But secondly, we get to live out the righteous life that God has called us to by faith. We get to demonstrate what the transformed life, transformed Christian life looks like. As we exhibit transformed lives, we help people see that we are both not perfect, but also not finished. Living that transformed life is gonna affect how we speak. It'll affect the topics that we talk about. It'll affect what we see with our eyes, what we read. It'll affect what we listen to. So as you invite friends into your life, I invite friends into my life, may we speak of Christ. May we help them see that God is doing a transforming work in us. And he invites them to do the same. Folks, when you're with people who are far from God, go ahead and you're having a meal together, go ahead and pray over your meal. Maybe you're sitting at lunch in the, I know Poolsville High School doesn't have much of a cafeteria, but maybe you're at the cafeteria or maybe you're at McDonald's or something with your friends and maybe you just all sit down together and say, hey, can I pray for our meal and thank God for it? And I bet they'd be like, okay, that's a little weird, but yeah, sure. Or when you're out at a restaurant, you're going to pray over your meal. Maybe you just pray and, or ask the, the, the uh, server, hey, we're going to pray in just a moment. How can I pray for you? Danielle and I went out to celebrate our anniversary a few, I guess, five, six weeks ago now. And we were at a, at a restaurant, and, and somehow in the conversation, the, the lady got wind that we belonged to a church. And so, I, I mean, because I'm a pastor, I have a business card, and I gave her the card, so... But it was interesting. She's actually looking for a church. Our, ours probably wouldn't be, she lives like down county somewhere, so we may not be the greatest place for her. But she's like, I'll try to check that out. So who knows? She might be online. Hey there. Um, but I want to encourage us to offer to pray. Offer to pray for people. Maybe it's your friend when you go to the mailbox or you're taking your trash or recycling down or back. Be willing to linger a little bit with the folks that God has placed around you. I need to do the same. I'm not always very good. We get so busy. So let me just close with a couple things. We're called to be witnesses for Christ. 
We are called to unashamedly share the good news with our words, with our actions, with our prayers. And we could talk about methods of evangelism. There are great things like evangelism explosion. We talked a little while ago about that. Who's your one? Who's that one person you're going to be praying for? Who's that one person you're going to invite to church? There are other methods like the best news or, or faith, F-A-I-T-H. Forgiveness is available to all. It's impossible to, it's been a long time since I, you have to turn and then heaven is your home. But we, instead of figuring out gimmicky ways, we might be better served by praying and asking God to give us a heart for people who are far from him. God, break our hearts for our neighbor who doesn't know you, for that coworker who is overwhelmed, for that classmate depressed, lonely. Pray and ask God to change uh, our perspective on our lives. Maybe we need a new view. There's a guy who wrote the book, a little book that I read called Overcoming Walls to Witnessing, and he shares a testimony of a, of a nurse. And the, someone asked this lady, well, what do you do for work? And here's her reply. She says, I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ on mission for him, cleverly disguised as an emergency room nurse. All right, I can imagine the word is a bit like yours. I'm a disciple Jesus Christ cleverly designed as a, as a, a metro access driver, right? Are we on mission or are we looking at our occupations? We should pray for our classmates, friends, and neighbors. God has placed these people in our lives for a reason intentionally, we need to intentionally invite them in, invite them close so that the gospel can rub off on them. Let them see how God is working in you. Even invite them to a meal or invite them to church. And I want to encourage you, if you still need some more resources or, or some more help, I want to encourage you, there's a few things out of the book nook, and these are only few that I grabbed, but there's a little tract out there called Two Ways to Live. This might be something cool that you could, you could get. And, and here's, you know, sometimes Sunday afternoons, Christians get a bad rap because we'll, some of us might go out to eat and then we get all evangelistically zealous. So we want to share the gospel with our servers and then we don't tip them well. We say, here, I, I don't want to give you money, but I want to give you something that's worth eternal life. We'll give them money too. Give them a very generous gift. But Two Ways to Live is something that you could give to, to a friend or family member. There's another book out there that we got a, a while ago called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb with Easter coming up. This, maybe this is something you can give away to the, the person who delivered and the Amazon driver or the FedEx person. Or maybe, you're, maybe a friend who's like, empty tomb. People don't come back to life after they're dead. Or here's a, a, a new book that, that um, just came out. It's by a guy who's a, a retired missionary. The truth about lies. And then what he does is he asks all sorts of, talks about all sorts of lies that our culture would like to share, would like all of us to buy into. And this is designed to be a book that is also given away so that people can read it. There's a, a bunch of these out there. And there's only a couple of these, but Case for Christ, this is a, an older book, kind of redone, but Lee Strobel, as you may know, he was a, a newspaper guy. And he's, he voraciously studied all sorts of things about truths about Jesus Christ. It's a long read, but well worth, well worth looking at. 
So you can look at those things, read them, and then give them away to folks. But here's a couple other books that you might think about. One is um, this little tiny book. We've got a few of these out there called uh, What If I'm Discouraged About Evangelism? I I need to read this one, and you can read it in about 10 minutes. But it's it's really, I think, very good. Uh, Another one that that gets more to the theology of evangelism, it's called uh, Evangelism. Uh, how the whole church speaks of Jesus by Max Stiles, that retired missionary that did the Truth About Lies book. He, he talks about that. Another one is um, the Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He talks a lot about what he does, about how to sh- how he shares the gospel. I mean, he doesn't do. He's a very extroverted guy, and some of you guys resemble that remark, and some of you guys like me are really frightened by being overly extroverted. Um. But he talks about, I mean, he never does anything alone. He's always got people around him. He's, always, he's just really, really good about engaging people. And then the last one that, that's out there is called One-to-One Bible Reading. It's by a guy named David Helm, longtime pastor. Um, he talks about how to take the Bible. And this is something you might consider doing students on, you know, over lunch. Read the book, figure out some ways to do this, but then invite some friends. Hey, would you be open over lunch to, to reading scripture with me? And so we just read and talk about, maybe take the book of Mark as a way of sharing the gospel, but also discipling at the same time. So let me encourage you, a bunch of these, or some of these are out there. There are so many more resources, but I want to encourage us. You know, we don't, we don't often think about it as a spiritual discipline. And we, sometimes we assume that this is something that other people are gifted for and other people are called to. In fact, I was reading something this week and this, this speaker, this pastor or whatever, was telling all these folks, hey, you know, if you don't have the gift of evangelism, fine. Other people do, so pray for them. So this guy came back and he said, can I come to your church and speak twice? One one week, one the next. And he's like, well, what would you talk about? He said, well, I, the first week I'd talk about giving. And he said, you may not have the gift of giving. You may not have the gift of generosity. That's okay, don't give. Leave that to other people. And he said, the next week I would come back and say, talk about serving. You may not have the gift to serve. But there are other people who can serve. I mean, that's why we have the 80-20 rule. 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people, right? And so the same thing here. Sometimes we view evangelism as for someone else. But we all get to be a part of that. We are all called to this. Matthew 28, 19 to 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then Romans 10, 13 to 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? And we read earlier, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So may we all preach daily everywhere that God calls us to be. Let me pray for us. Father, give us hearts that are tender toward those who are far from you. God, I pray that you would give us wills that are unashamed. 
and forgive us, I pray. When we have too small a view of you and too dim a view of the hope that you can and will save others. Help us in Jesus' name, amen.